Good morning again, everyone. Todd, your prayers are always a feast, brother. Thank you for uh, leading us so well. We're going to be in John 20 together today, so turn with me there if you would. And if there are any preschoolers or children, we have Gospel Project now offered for you. It would be great teaching on age-appropriate Bible stories. If you don't have um, a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you, and you could pull that out. It's blue. It looks like this. And we are on page uh, 528 in those Bibles, 528. Um, Last week, we together were in John chapter 19. If you're new with us, our habit is uh, simply to work our way passage by passage through a book of the Bible and then go to another one and do the same thing. So the vast majority of weeks in a year, that's what we do together. We do this because uh, we believe that the Scriptures are God speaking and that the Scriptures really set the tone and direction for what a church does as we get together. And so we've been at this now since uh, last mid-August and are nearing uh, the end of the book of John. Last week we finished with Jesus dead in a garden tomb just outside Jerusalem. He had been crucified, died, and then Joseph and Nicodemus got his body down off the cross, carried him to a tomb, cleaned his body, put spices on his body, wrapped his body, and then placed Jesus' corpse in a new tomb, a tomb likely owned by Joseph that had been newly cut for himself. Well, Friday, Jesus was dead. Saturday, Jesus was dead. Early Sunday morning, Jesus was dead. But today, as we turn the page from John chapter 19 to John chapter 20, we find that Jesus rised, arose again. This is great news. Over the next four weeks, we'll be considering together the significance of what we find in John chapter 20 and 21, and uh, Lori Hinnigan, one of our newest members, is going to come for us and read John chapter 20. I didn't say Heineken. You didn't. Aren't you proud? No, (laughs) you said it right. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken away from the, the I'm sorry had been t- had that the stone had been taken away from the tomb so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one whom Jesus loved and said to them they have taken the lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him so peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my fathers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although this time the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Thank you so much. Lori, if I could... Uh, preach as quickly as you read. We'd be out of here in about 15 minutes. Thank you for reading so many verses so well. John chapter 20 describes the greatest of all discoveries, an empty tomb due to a risen Lord. Brothers and sisters, Jesus conquered death. Jesus rose again. Jesus is alive. Sometime in the first century in the city just outside of Jerusalem, on a Sunday morning, Jesus rose again. Now, for those who believe, believe this message, trust this person, depend on this God, this is the day that changes everything. You see, the resurrection of Jesus is his vindication. It's his confirmation that everything Jesus said was true and everything he did was right. It's the declaration that sin, death, 
and the devil don't win. That Jesus is victorious over them. It's the validation that Jesus is in fact king. It's the proof that Jesus' death on the cross was an acceptable sacrifice to God. It's the inauguration of a new creation. The resurrection, brothers and sisters, is the day that changed everything. Now, there are many details in this uh, important passage, far more, honestly, than we could spend even one, two Sunday mornings on these 31 verses. So I would want to encourage you to pick this chapter up again, not just here as we're together, but on your own. Read these details closely. Spend time thinking and praying through them. Maybe get together with another Christian or even a non-believer and visit together with what you see here in the text. There's much we can learn. Uh, Up until about 8.30 this morning, I was planning on just spending one week here as we considered together both the evidence for the resurrection and also the significance of the resurrection. But there's just too much, and you didn't bring lunch, so we're going to do this over the next two weeks. Today we'll just consider together the evidence of the resurrection, and next week the significance of the resurrection. But do spend time meditating and praying on this most important of chapters. About 15 years ago, um, I got a call in the evening about the time I was headed to bed from a dear friend who had a drug and alcohol abuse problem. This was not unlike other calls I'd received from him. He was high and was saying, I don't want to drive my car. Would you come get me? Here's where I am. Not knowing really what state I would find him in, I asked Jill, can I, my wife, can I use your car? She, we had recently bought a new-to-us Pathfinder and thought he might need to lay down. So I got in the car, laid down the seats, and went to the spot where he said he was, and he was not there. I waited and waited and waited. Finally, he called again. He said, now, well, actually, I'm over here. So I went over there, and this went on the entire night. About 10 a.m. the next morning, it was a Sunday morning, I was at the church I was pastoring at the time, and he called again. said, I've checked myself into the psych ward of the hospital downtown, living in Oklahoma City at the time. So got back in Jill's car and headed down the 25-minute or so drive downtown to see him. And it was pouring rain. Now, to those of you from Phoenix, here's what this is. It's this stuff that falls down from the sky, and sometimes it comes in like buckets. It was one of those times when it was raining so hard, you couldn't hardly see the uh, windshield, let alone the road. I was going down the highway, not, not speeding, but going as much, fast as I could legally, and on the far right-hand lane of the highway, When all of a sudden, I'm traveling this direction, and the back end of the car started to go this way, and the car is turning this way. Have you ever had one of these experiences where your life is flashing before your eyes, but it's very, very slow? So it's like first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. My life is passing before my eyes. And I thought, honestly, I might make it all the way around. This was a five, six-lane highway. But I didn't quite make it. 
So the, the side rear passenger end of Jill's car struck a concrete median that was going about 70 miles an hour, struck it with so much force that then it rolled the opposite direction, smashed the other side of the car, and then spun around again and was facing the opposite direction. Every window exploded. Every side of the car was smashed. And I was just sitting there, stunned. Couldn't see. My glasses had been knocked off. I recall a man running over and yelling, are you okay? Are you okay? And he's getting drenched. I said, yes. Crawled out the window, reached into my pocket to get out my phone to call for help. And my pockets were full of glass. Undid my shirt. Glass poured out of my shirt. Later in the day, I went to take off my socks to change my clothes. There was glass in my socks. How does that happen? But for that few seconds of drifting across the highway, on through the police arriving and later sitting in the tow truck as Jill arrived and seeing her face as she looked at the car, every moment of that experience is seared in my memory. Ask me what I did three days ago. I have no idea. But ask me what happened 15 years ago on that particular morning. I can tell you every finite detail. One of the really crazy things that happened is I couldn't, I lost my glasses, so I couldn't see. I was explaining to the policeman, I, I'm trying to fill out your forms, but I can't see them very well. And he says, well, let's go look back at the point of impact. Maybe they fell out somewhere. So sure enough, we walked down the highway, and about 100 yards back, next to the concrete median, are laying my glasses, fit and fine. <laughs> Put them on, and I wore them again for years. Friends, that moment is seared permanently in my memory in such a way that it's as though it was still happening. I have absolutely no question what happened at any moment on that morning. In a similar way, John records for us all the vivid, precise details of what happened that Sunday morning when Jesus rose again. These are the facts. These are the historical events. This is the stuff of history. This is the eyewitnesses recounting as they recalled each moment on that most fateful of all mornings. Now, as we consider this morning together a variety of pieces of evidence for the resurrection, I want to make sure that the overall point of the entire chapter is clear. If you're taking notes and you want to remember the main idea of John chapter 20, this is it. As promised, King Jesus rose again in victory. Jesus said this was going to happen. He promised it ahead of time. And then he came back just as he indicated he would. And he came back in victory. And this Jesus not only rose again, but he appeared to many. Most of the chapter is the recounting of Jesus showing up repeatedly to different groups of people. And why did he do that? 
Well, John 20 is very careful to show us that he prepared his disciples for his ascension and their continuance of his gospel mission. This is what John chapter 20 is about. King Jesus rose again. King Jesus showed himself to many. King Jesus explained that he would return to the Father, he would send the Spirit, and then they, and incidentally, all of us who trust him today, would continue on in the mission of telling more and more and more people that Jesus lives. That's what John 20 is about. Now, let's be honest. There are some weird stuff in John chapter 20. I mean, even for those of us who have been Christians a long time, John might not be the gospel you go to most readily to talk to a new Christian or a a new person about the resurrection day. Because John's got some weird stuff. Let me run you through a few of these things. Number one, John tells in no uncertain terms, a dead man came back to life. I've seen a lot of things, but I've never seen that. This is an incredible thing that John claims to have happened. Not not only did he come back, but not like in a dream, and not as a vision, not the stuff of myth, but a verifiable, touchable, hearable Jesus alive again. Number two, another kind of strange thing that happened is as Mary looks into that tomb when she came back the second time, she saw two angels, one where the head of Christ would have been, another where the feet of Christ would have been, and they talked to her. That's a little strange. Uh, Number three, here's where we're ramping up the oddness a bit. Did you notice as Lori read that Jesus' body had been transformed, and yet the markings or the scars of the crucifixion were still there. It seems as though there's continuity with Jesus' pre-resurrection body, and yet there's discontinuity also. Here's what I mean. The disciples are huddled together in a room with the doors locked because they're afraid. They don't want to get crucified too. So they're hunkered down, freakishly tightened up, buttoned up. Nobody can come in or out. And yet, poof, here's Jesus. Jesus apparently walked through the wall. Now, Jesus wasn't doing anything like that prior to his resurrection. In other words, in his earthly life, his roughly 30 33 years of living on earth, there is no sense at all that he did anything like that. And yet in these appearances post-resurrection, he just shows up whenever he wants, and then he leaves, and then he shows up again. That's strange. And yet, he also bears the marks of the crucifixion. He allows Thomas to touch his wrist and to see his side, because Thomas is full of doubt. So there seems to be something about Jesus that is the same, and yet something that is different. That's odd. Now maybe strangest of all is that Jesus, after coming back 
from the dead, sees Mary and says, Mary, it's me. And Mary, in her exuberant voice, yells, teacher, falls at his feet, grabs him around the ankles to worship him. And Jesus says, don't touch me. What's up with that? Well, Jesus says it's because, Mary, don't touch me because I've not yet ascended to the Father. Huh? What's going on? Friends, all of these things are rather preposterous. Unless they're true. You'd be crazy to believe any of this unless it's true. This chapter is written to give us the factual, historical reality of Jesus' resurrection. So all I want to do with you this morning is to consider together the evidence that John gives us in John chapter 20 for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and this is a settled issue for you, like you're a little offended that I would say these things are weird. I want to encourage you to not check out, but to lean in. Because when you go to work tomorrow, or you go back to your place of residence this afternoon, or you go to the gym in the morning, if you're one of the three of us that do that, or if you go out to lunch today, the majority of people you will interact with do not believe John chapter 20. And so in everyday life, the Lord is giving you opportunity, Christian to get to know people, to build relationships, to share your life with them, and then ultimately, hopefully, to be given an opportunity to tell people the truth about the resurrection. What will they hear as you share? Hopefully, they'll hear somebody who has a reasoned, rational response for John chapter 20. And if you're here this morning and you're not at all sure about this, then this will especially Lord willing, be helpful to you. John gives us three main groups of evidence for the resurrection, and they are sequential through this chapter. The first thing John gives us is an empty tomb. The second is a risen Lord, and the third is a written record. So again, all I'd love to do with you in the remaining 25 minutes that we have is to consider these three things. Let's start first together with an empty tomb. Look back with me at verse 1, would you? It says, Now on the first day of the week, that's Sunday morning, incidentally, the church has been meeting on Sunday morning ever since. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Mary Magdalene and very likely several other women got up early on Sunday morning. The Sabbath was over and they wanted to go to the tomb. They wanted to go to the tomb to pay their respects. They were still mourning the loss of Jesus. But when Mary got to that garden tomb, she was shocked to find that the tomb had been opened. The stone had been rolled 
away. The tomb was open and the body was gone. Now, to us, the empty tomb is strong evidence for a risen king. But we have thousands of years of church history evidencing it. And we have the Scripture itself. Mary didn't have that. Mary didn't have the New Testament. Mary had an empty tomb. Her assumption was what? Her assumption was someone has stolen the body of Jesus. Imagine the worst thing that has ever happened to you. Imagine grieving over that thing for days. And then imagine trying to do something to get over it, only to find that it has gotten even worse. That's what Mary found when she found the empty tomb. So for us, this is evidence. For her, it was less than that. Notice that there's a woman first to the tomb. Notice that there's a woman first to say that the tomb is empty. Friends, if you were to come up with a theory about what happened to Jesus, this isn't the way to do it. Here's what I mean. One of the theories given today about the resurrection from those who reject the resurrection is to say that someone did, in fact, the disciples did, in fact, somehow get the soldiers away from the tomb, roll it open, and then steal his body and hide it someplace no one has ever found, and then conjure up the story of the resurrection. And let's forget things like, well, why would they live the rest of their lives for something they knew to be a lie? We'll save that for another day. But just consider this. If you were to make up this story, including these most ridiculous of details, if they didn't actually happen, then if you wanted people to be convinced that your story was true, then you would pick someone of importance to tell it. You would have the first witness be someone of great stature, perhaps someone of wealth and authority and significance. Why? Well, because historical events rest on eyewitnesses. And if your eyewitness is somebody important, it makes your case all the stronger. And yet, what do we have in John chapter 20? We have a woman. Ladies, if you lived in the first century, you did not have a credible voice. This isn't the way the Old Testament had designed society to work. It's not as though God had commanded it to be this way. But Mary, in first century Palestine, her voice was hardly audible. Mary had nothing more than a tiny whisper. She couldn't own property. She had few, if any, real rights. Her voice wasn't even admissible in court. And yet it's Mary who sees the empty tomb. It's Mary who first runs to tell the disciples the tomb is empty. Friends, you don't make up a story and then give someone with no credibility as your lead witness. 
That doesn't make sense. And yet it is, in fact, what's happened. Mary announced the tomb to be empty because it was, in fact, empty. John recorded that Mary found it because this is, in fact, what happened. The empty tomb is tremendous evidence of a risen Lord. Now look also down at verses 6 and 7. We won't read them again, but perhaps you can skim them as I'm sharing with you another detail. What you find in verses 6 and 7 are, are Mary went and told, very likely John and Peter, the tomb is empty. And so these two guys headed out on a race. And isn't it so like a man to say, I outran the other one? But they get there, they get to the tomb, John's looking in, and he sees the tomb's empty. Peter, just like you'd expect, runs and runs right into the tomb. He goes inside, and what does he see? He sees an empty tomb, yes, empty of a body, but he sees these wrappings lying there. This is one of those places where it's easy to just breeze past and to get to something that feels more relevant to daily life. And friend, when you do that with your Bible, you're missing very often the power of the passage. You see, believe it or not, the details about the linen wrappings announce an incredible fact. And here's the fact. Jesus was not resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. Now, what's the difference? What's all the difference in the world? Can you think of another place in the book of John where we find another person wrapped up? Yeah, a guy named Lazarus. Lazarus died. The family mourned. They mummified his body, if you will. They stuck him in a tomb. Jesus came later. Jesus saw their weeping. He was moved with compassion. And as God in the flesh, he had the power to say, come out, and Lazarus came out. If you read John 11 closely, how did he come out? He came out stumbling around because he's still all wrapped up. Lazarus was resuscitated. He was brought back to life. What does that mean? Well, it means Lazarus got old and Lazarus died. But Jesus, Jesus, if you looked in the tomb that morning, you would have seen the shape of his body in those linens collapsed. John even goes as far to tell us the folding of the head scarf. So when I first read this, this was so confusing to me. Because I'm thinking like I got laundry out of the dryer and folded it and put it away. That's not what it means. The folding is the folding of those cloths around Jesus' head. And so as they're laying there, they're laying there still in the shape of his head, folded up. The linens around his body that had all those dozens of pounds of spices have simply collapsed, still in the shape of Jesus. What does that tell us? That obscure feeling 
odd little detail shows us that Jesus wasn't simply resuscitated. No, he was resurrected. So when Jesus brought himself back to life, he passed through the linen. This is why he could pass through the wall and show up and talk to the disciples. It's why he could vanish and reappear. Friends, Jesus' body in many respects looked the same, but it was, in fact, remarkably different. Jesus was resurrected to a new order. Paul, in essence, tells us later in the New Testament that Jesus is the prototype of what every Christian will become. You see, brothers, sister. If Jesus doesn't return before you die, you will slowly, gradually die. And if you don't get hit by a car or get some tragic disease that kills you quickly, you will grow older and older and older, and then one day you will pass away. Your body will be filled with some nasty chemicals. You'll be put in the ground, and you will slowly rot. But one day when Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will rise first. And you won't be brought back from the dead. You won't be like Lazarus. You'll be given a new body, a body where everything is made right. Those of you who have chronic pain, and there's many in our church who do, you won't have it anymore. Those of you who have a failing memory, you no longer will have that. Those of you with significant limitations physically will be able to run and jump and skip. Maybe if you run against John, you'll beat him one day. Friends, Jesus is the first fruits. He's the prototype. He's the new creation. He inaugurated a whole new humanity in which everyone who ever comes and believes in him after him will one day be given what he's got, a new body. Jesus was resurrected in a body that will never fail again. He's been renewed and restored. He's now perfect physically. We'll talk about this more next week, but the significance of this, just to give you a little taste, is that there is today a human being in the presence of God the Father. You see, Jesus went back to heaven and where He sits right now on the throne next to the Father as both a human being and God. This is why He can intercede for us in an ongoing way. This is enormously significant. So these first ten verses give us the empty tomb. Another piece of evidence given to us in these verses, verses 11 through 29 of John chapter 20, is a risen Lord. See, not only did the disciples look in and see the tomb empty and these linens lying there, but they then went home, confused at this point, but Jesus showed up. Jesus revealed himself to them. Jesus made himself known. The evidence is clear. Jesus, alive and well, showing up. 
in grace and in love, speaking with his followers. Verses 11 through 18, he talks to Mary. Verses 19 through 23, he talks to the disciples without Thomas. I don't know where Thomas was. Maybe he's out getting some tacos or something. But then in verses 24 to 29, he shows up to the disciples again, this time with Thomas. And by the way, if you doubt and struggle with believing these stories, here's a guy right in it, living it out, who's struggling too. There wasn't just an empty tomb. There wasn't just the hint of the linens collapsed. But there's eyewitnesses visiting, seeing, even touching Jesus. As the rest of the New Testament tells us, this went on not with a dozen, but with multiple hundreds of people. Until a little over a month later, Jesus ascended to the Father where He has remained ever since. So what's the evidence for the resurrection? Well, empty tomb. A risen Lord appearing to people. And then finally, a written record. If you would look with me at verse 30 and 31. These verses contain the, the thesis. Now, let scrape off some of those cobwebs from your head if you're not in school anymore. A thesis statement is this is what this entire writing is about. That's what we find in verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, meaning the book of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Friend, if you're here today and you've not trusted Christ, if you're not a Christian, if you wouldn't claim to believe the Bible, we count it as a church family, so incredibly kind of you to come and give of your time. Thank you for listening and considering the claims of Christ. We're honored that every Sunday there are many people here who are not yet Christians. Our hope and prayer for you is that as you hear God's Word, that God would, as it were, turn on the lights inside, that He'd open your mind to understand and that you would come to see and believe in Jesus Christ. We want that for you, not because we're some weird cult and we want something from you, but because we believe that this is, in fact, where life is found. You see, the gospel is the message that if you recognize the facts that I'm sharing with you to be true, then these facts, this person of Christ will change you. As you turn from a life of sin to Him, then your separation from God will be exchanged for a new, wonderful, never-ending life with God. And if, in fact, you believe this message, you can, in your own words, pray to the Father now. Confess that you believe Jesus is Lord and that God has raised Him from the dead and you will be saved. But maybe you're not quite ready for that. Maybe you need a little bit more evidence. Maybe you're wondering, did the resurrection actually happen? Well, friend, frankly, 
it doesn't matter if all the Christians in the room pray and beg Jesus to show up and stand right there and tell you himself in an audible way, I am, in fact, alive. I don't think if all the Christians in the world prayed for that at the exact same point, it would do anything. Not because Jesus isn't alive and not because he can't do that, but because that isn't the way he's chosen to reveal himself today. You see, the word, Jesus, went back to the Father, and the word then sent the Spirit. And the Spirit inspired the Scriptures. And the Spirit now speaks continually through the Scriptures. The Bible is the written record of who God is and what God has done for humanity. The Bible is, yes, God spoke, but it's more than that. It's God speaking. And so our encouragement to you today would be not to pray for some mystical new experience, some vision, some dream. You don't need that. You don't need God to say anything new because God has already said all that needs to be said. So we'd encourage you to open the Bible and read, to sit with people who understand it, not because they're smarter, but because they've been with it longer. You see, the Bible is the self-authenticating message of God. If you ask the Father to, in fact, teach you, He will. And the book of John, in particular, is written to tell you about Jesus' life on earth and His substitutionary death for sinners and His resurrection that all God's people would be given new life in Him. But maybe you're still skeptical. Frankly, that was me. I grew up in a home where I was taught this. But nothing inside of me wants to believe anything else anybody teaches me. And so I get skepticism. So I just ask you this question. If what John records is not true, then how do you explain the existence of the book of John? If what John recorded didn't happen, then why did John and all the other disciples give the rest of their lives to this message? And if what they gave their lives to wasn't true, then why did it spread over the ancient world like a wildfire? Now, that doesn't prove the resurrection. That's not my point. But it does perhaps mean you should ask a few more questions about your doubts. But maybe that's too abstract. Let's look at a picture together. This is a picture of something called P52. Turn to your neighbor and say P52. Now, I hope you will remember it because you've spoken it. A P52, the P stands for papyrus, and 52 is the number of the fragment. P52 exists today at a university in the UK. You can hop on a plane and go see it today if you'd like. This fragment is from John 18. It is about the size 
of a business card. So it looks like this. On the front is a section of John 18. On the back is another section of John 18. This fragment was discovered not in a university in the UK, but in a town in Egypt. And it has been dated, this fragment, not to the year 500, not to the year 400, not to the year 300, not to the year 200, been dated somewhere between 125 and 150 A.D. It is the oldest discovered fragment of the New Testament to date. Now, it would have included the entire book, but the rest of it has dis- decayed or been destroyed or gotten wet or burned. But what we have in that university is a business card size of what John wrote in John chapter 18. So what? Well, Hang with me for a couple more moments because, friends, people you talk to who don't believe in Jesus have heard all kinds of garbage. So let me try to just give you some facts. Jesus died somewhere in the 30s in Jerusalem. He rose again somewhere in the 30s in Jerusalem. But whatever happened in Jerusalem was so significant that people, as persecution began, scattered all over the Roman Empire. By the year 80, or if you're a a really skeptical person, by the year 90, the Apostle John, as an old man in the city of Ephesus, which is in Turkey today, wrote the Gospel of John. But he didn't sit at his iMac. Right Today, if you want to write something, you sit at your computer, you type it out, and then you hit print, and then you carry it around and show people. No, that's not how that works. You, you type it up, and then you push email, and you send it. No, that's not even how it works. Most of us, if we want to share something, we write it on our phones, and then we tweet it, or we post a picture of it on Instagram. And it's instantaneously able to be viewed by millions of people. But that's not the world John lived in. John painstakingly wrote 21 chapters. And then if anyone wanted a copy, what did they have to do? They had to get papyrus, and not in hours, but days, perhaps even weeks, record, record, record. Now, If John wrote the the liberal skeptical date of 90, and this copy was found in Egypt in 125, then friends, in less than 100 years, the news of the resurrection of Jesus had bounced from Jerusalem to Ephesus and back down to the Nile. That does not prove scientifically, that the resurrection happened. But I would ask you, how do you explain it in any other way? The raw, hard facts are that if you believe anything about anything from the first century, 
then you can believe that Jesus died and rose again. And if you disbelieve it, then, for example, most of what we know from Roman history was written by a man named Tacitus. And the copies we have of what Tacitus wrote are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after. And only a few have been found. You know how many fragments of the New Testament have been discovered from the first couple hundred years? Over 5,000. There is nothing more verifiable from the ancient world than the events recorded in the New Testament. The evidence is powerful. There's an empty tomb. There's a risen Lord. And there's a written record. So non-Christian today, won't you trust in Christ? And if you're not yet ready to do that, our hope and prayer is that you would stay after to visit with one of the pastors or whoever came with you. Say, tell me more. I don't want to be sold a used car and I might not become part of the church, but I want to at least look at the evidence more closely. And then church, those of us already persuaded that Jesus is alive, friend, are you living with the glorious news every day that your King is alive and well? that He is sitting at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and that His power is yours in everyday life and that whatever you face today, you have the hope of a resurrected body tomorrow. This is John 20. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious chapter. Would you please take now my feeble attempt to repeat what it says? Would you use your spirit to convince all of us of its truthfulness, of its power, of your ability to change our lives? Father, may we repent today of seeking to be our own kings and queens, and may we instead trust in you, the king who rose from the dead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.